0: Hey guys, this is Ndebusi here, and welcome again to our podcast, Reframed by Mustard, in which we, an Africa-focused venture agency, explore topics weekly with the intent of reframing the current thinking about ventures, initiatives, and brands. I hope you enjoy and get insights from today's conversation, as well as our others. And if you do, please, please do us a favor by following and rating us on your podcast player of choice, and sharing this podcast with others doing both of these things will help us massively and we will thank you from a distance but for now I will leave you with today's podcast uh yeah so SBF um I guess the key thing to start off with is, like, what what even happened? Um, so, okay, what is what is FTX, right? And who is SBF? Um, I, I really want to go into who is SBF. I want to go into who is SBF in the terms of who the kind of persona, the archetype, as opposed to he went to MIT, he was formerly at, you know, um, XYZ, a trader, blah, blah, blah. But I do want to get to that, but like off the bat, like what was FTX and what's basically happened? What's the background with FTX?
1: Yeah, so FTX is still operating, but it's declared bankruptcy. So it was, it is a cryptocurrency exchange and a crypto hedge fund, which was founded by Sam Bankman-Fried who's American and some other co-founders, but it was incorporated in Antigua and Barbuda and headquartered in the um, Bahamas. So at its height, after being founded in 2019, it had over a million users. It was the third largest cryptocurrency exchange by volume. They were doing a billion dollars in revenue in 2021, uh, net income of $400 million, something like that. So it was big. And they had raised quite a lot of equity capital from investors around a billion dollars from about 90, us-based investors but then late last year the uh the exchange was hit with quite a lot of allegations in the press suggesting that it Mm. lacked the liquidity that it claimed to have and that there were shenanigans ongoing some of the big allegations came from a major competitor um coinbase yeah and that spiraled out of no, control. Uh, was it Binance? Binance, I'm sorry. Yeah. So so Coin, yeah. CoinDesk actually issued the initial allegation, the, some of the initial reports around liquidity concerns, and then you're right, by, the CEO of Binance um, sort of put something out on Twitter, which brought it into the mainstream. And yeah. it spiraled very quickly, and within ten days, the the uh, company was declared declared for bankruptcy. So the main allegations against FTX were that essentially there was this undisclosed relationship between the cryptocurrency exchange and a hedge fund, which was also controlled by the founder. And there were lots of related party transactions that were opaque and that really made it difficult to determine what the true liquidity position was of the cryptocurrency exchange and the extent of its exposure um, to the hedge fund operations. And so if you look at the SEC complaint, they talk about undisclosed diversion of funds, um, special treatment for the hedge fund on the FTX crypto trading platform, basically they gave them an unlimited line of credit on the platform to the hedge fund. Um, really very little risk and compliance measures in place, uh, which wasn't disclosed to investors, and just lots of overvalued illiquid assets, um, you know, tokens that just didn't really make sense if you compared that to what the investors were being told was the true financial position of the company. And then all sorts of, uh, uh, let's call it more colorful allegations around the individuals and cast of characters associated with it, but it was a huge exchange, run with very little compliance and risk mitigation infrastructure, doing a lot of opaque, shady deals, it is alleged, uh, between related parties. And at the same time, there was this character of SBF, which I think we're going to delve into now, who was uh, very, he was seen as this white knight of the crypto sector, which, and as you know, the wider sector has been really subject to a lot of criticism. And he was seen as this white knight who was trying to do it for the better good of society. At least he positioned himself that way. He was also a mm. massive political donor to both the Republican and Democratic Party, especially Democratic Party, which is in office, but also Republican Party.
0: Oh, was I didn't know he, I didn't I didn't know he um, he
1: donated to both. I he did well. He, okay. he invested he invested the Democrat. He he um, donated to the Democrats, and then his number two was making I think about fifty percent of the same number. But donating it to Republicans. Ah, uh, okay. And Playing both sides, Exactly, and so and he was seen as, as this person who was trying to work with the regulators in the U.S. To, to to show them how regulation should be done, and he was one of the few people in crypto welcoming regulation, or so it seemed. But now yeah. it's it's become apparent that a lot of that was seems to have been a kind of smokescreen to allow him to be doing what he was doing. So that's essentially the story around. Yeah. It.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 just to say the the quote unquote hedge fund, so to speak, that's Alameda Research, right? Yes,
1: Alameda. Yeah, research.
0: okay, okay, cool, cool. cool. I mean, it's so so obviously. those, those are, that's the core facts. Um, so 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 let's look at let's look at this for example, right? Um, you had I've actually got up Forbes. So Forbes 30 Under 30. Uh, you actually have the I think the girlfriend of Sam Bankman Fried. So, so Alameda Research, basically, the co-CEOs of Alameda Research, were literally 30 under 30 Forbes list in 2022. So this is obviously prior to the the actual occurrence of this. Um, the thing that also st- stood out to me was um, Sam bankman Freed, right, um, in the World Economic Forum. I th- so at Davos, I think that was last year, 2022, either, either it was last year, because Davos is normally like Q1 in, in Q1 or something like that. So it was either 2022 or it was in maybe the, the the previous year, but given it's 2019 and also given COVID, it was probably 2022. So, you know, when you talk about this kind of like uh, a night of the round table that, that you know, uh, um, SBF and his, so to speak, his sword FTX and Alameda or FTX in particular was, that's for me the super interesting thing because um it's how did it get to um you know being this big and, and if this isn't this isn't I guess one of the questions I do want to ask as well is and, and I'm asking you because obviously your background, is this in your opinion, let's actually touch on this before thing. think in your opinion, is this the same as allegedly um the same as um, the Theranos scandal, or is it different? And if it's different, is is you know in your opinion, is it is it does it look worse or does it look better?
1: Well, I think what's similar about the two is they both involved very high profile, very media savvy founders who were portrayed as geniuses coming to save the world in their particular sectors. They were very, very good at presenting themselves to the press um, in a very ethical kind of way. And Mm. they were darlings of the media, especially the left-leaning media or the tech media, rather, let's say, in the States. Mm. And they got a lot of leeway as a result. The difference between them, I would say, is that Theranos raised a lot of investment from non-specialists in its industry. That was almost mm. a deliberate feature that Elizabeth Holmes mm. used to prevent too much scrutiny on the medical device that she was creating. Whereas SPF yep. raised from the great and the good of Silicon Valley some of the mm. biggest and most renowned hedge funds and well, and, uh, well VC funds rather Participated in, mm. um, in the FTX uh, equity rounds, and so mm-hmm. you would think then he would have had a lot more scrutiny from these very sophisticated and savvy professional investors, mm-hmm. whereas Elizabeth Holmes, Elizabeth Holmes had people who didn't really know anything about medicine or medical devices. Mm. So those those are some of Fine. the differences, um, you know, involved. And then also obviously there are some structural inherent inherently structural differences um, between them, right? Elizabeth Holmes had this medical device and it Mm -hmm. was, um, you know, all around whether this device actually worked or not. Whereas FTX, it did what it purported to do in the sense that it was actually a cryptocurrency exchange. But this is more about the governance behind and underlying and underpinning that cryptocurrency exchange. And because of the nature of what he did, Obviously, he was subject to all these SEC regulations, um, securities exchange regulations, which were just completely flouted. It seems. Yeah, and so yeah. there are some some similarities, but there are some key differences as well between the two. Yeah.
0: So, so what, what I what interests me, um, because for me, this is. Um, evidence of narratives, of the power of narratives. Um especially when, and I know obviously there was there were probably some overlapping investors. Maybe there were very few overlapping investors, but there were definitely overlapping circles who invested most likely in Theranos and um and FTX or at least overlapping circles that would have thought Theranos was the real deal and then thought FTX is the real deal, right? And essentially I I touch on something I read not too long ago when I looked at it. And it wasn't necessarily in the FTX context, but it was in a different context. And it basically said that it was talking about the power of stories and narratives um, and also the power of, but the power of stories and narratives to give, it it didn't really talk about narratives, but it was talking about the power of perceptions, should I say, um, in particular to enable somebody to be perceived as an authority figure, right? Um, As an expert. And it essentially said that Um, those who think they can't, they won't fall for, um, like should I say, stories, narratives, uh, um, that kind of fake, in a fake way, put somebody up as an expert, are those who are actually very susceptible to fall for that, as well as those who actually want to seek, actively want to seek an expert or somebody to almost... Um, defer decisions and otherwise too, right? Um, and essentially, we have we still have this thing in society. Um, I, you know, as we keep saying, there's this, you know, there's a. We 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 still have many who don't think about narrative or don't consider narratives and the power of narratives, of course, pushed by the media, um, and the power of narratives to actually enable them. Um, to invest in something or to go wholeheartedly into something, a whole new world. Um, um, when otherwise, if the narratives weren't there, they would almost have sober eyes and and look at it in a different way. Um, so, I mean, one of the things I also say between Sam Bankman-Fried and, Fried and um, Elizabeth Holmes is their dress sense, which was really interesting. So, Elizabeth Holmes had the Steve Jobs. Uh, dress, the, the turtleneck is what she would wear. And Sam bankman freed. I think, and I can't claim, I'll be honest, I can't claim to have known him fantastically well um, prior to the FTX collapse, but in my head, a red flag was when, after everything was exposed, when I saw him at the World Economic Forum, um, so this was backdated image, World Economic Forum sitting next to, I think it was Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, they were both in suits and he was in a t-shirt and, um, would look like to be honest pretty tattered or, or, or very very inf- extremely informal shorts hair was messy and otherwise and in essence that to me is is the equivalent of um the guy who is who's maybe the md in the bank who comes in um, on that off day when all the juniors are in a, are in a suit he comes in in a, in, in in a polo top and and flip flops it's a power play And it's supposed to show that you're the smartest guy in the room. And with his background um, as a trader, as a quant, and also from MIT, um, essentially he knew on some conscious or subconscious level that people wanted, um, people wanted the story of the 20 something year old super smart guy who's gonna disrupt the industry uber mark you know mark II, facebook mark II, and again consciously or subconsciously he played up to that um and those who who would who would normally laugh and say you know to somebody else who might be an expert who's who's going through official channels and not using narratives very well would normally say i don't think you know what you're doing and not given t- the, the time of day instead you had the suited and booted elite in davos um allowing a chap to come onto the stage uh, 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 next to two of the biggest politicians of the last 30 years um, in a t-shirt and and shorts. And note, by the way, FTX was also one of the official partners of the World Economic Forum. Um, so this is what I care about. It's that thing of when we look back or when people look back and say, "How did this happen?" Um, everyone's going to ask the question about. Due diligence, how do they overlook the due diligence? How do they overlook X, Y while Z? But but my thing is it's 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 not a story. It, it, you know, if we if we look at it in that way, we're assuming that there was a level of sobriety. But my point is when the narratives are pumped so well and so powerfully, um the people who are susceptible to it are not Lucid in that moment to make lucid decisions. Does that make sense?
1: Uh, Yeah. Look, I think he went completely out of his way to paint himself as this sort of, you know, um, eccentric genius, right? Uh, Which is, which you're right. In Silicon Valley at the top of what has been a 10-year plus bull market where valuations are through the roof, then add into that this sort of um, very antagonistic philosophy of cryptocurrency in general to them as they mm. pattern match, it seems like, yes, this is the sort of person that would be successful in this anti-establishment field. So it's in keeping mm. with what they think or what they would expect from an eccentric genius in a, an anti-establishment sector. Right. So mm. now everything he did, whether it was wearing shorts on stage next to Bill Clinton or literally playing video games while having Sequoia pitch to him why he should accept their investment as opposed to the other way around, was very c- cleverly designed, I think, to, um, to yeah. sort of reinforce this, wow, this guy is such an ex- eccentric genius. And then also, to be fair, he, he managed to, in two years, found, mm-hmm. found FTX and get it to a billion in revenue. So there was something going on yeah. there which was substantial. Right it wasn't a complete complete hoax um now now you have to if, if you if you examine the quality of those earnings and how much of it was in crypto and how much of it was levered up and you know et cetera et cetera, but at the end of the day, he had a million users in two years, and he generated a lot of yeah. value in fiat currency and in cryptocurrency uh, in a short period of time so there there's something happening there which is substantive. it' was a complete hoax right but then add on this um Add on this sort of expectation that, you know, Silicon Valley has. And, and I think this goes down as well to this whole, people think they're very clever at reading people, which is why I think over mm. before COVID lockdowns, there was this reluctance. There was a sense that everyone had is I need to meet somebody in person before I can do business with them. And that's returning now. And I kind of, I, I, I do kind of get it because there's something you can tell when you sit down in front of somebody, but people overestimate their ability to actually make assessments based on proximity. hundred percent. Right? No, no, I sat down across the 100%. table, looked him in the whites of his eyes, and you know, he told me the deal, you know, I shook his hand, and that was that. And so now we, under, we overestim- overestimate our ability to, to make judgments on people's character, integrity, ethics, et cetera, based off of those signs, right? And then, and, and then, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it, I think, in the Silicon Valley world is also just, look, this is kind of priced into their business model, these sort of things, right? They don't expect these incidents to happen. But at a time when mm. there's record amounts of money being raised by VCs, they, the, the cryptocurrency is this, is it going to work? Is it not going to work sector? But it's, it can't be ignored if you're in tech. They kind of price in that they're going to write some checks that are going to go to zero. I don't think they do so thinking it's going to be fraud. I certainly don't think they thought it was going to be this one. Correct. But yep. they price these sorts of write-offs into their business model and so yeah if you if you look at most of those people even though it's gone down as one of the like sort of biggest frauds of the century and it was quite embarrassing for everybody involved i bet most of them if you ask them listen if you were to write that check again would you have done it i think a lot of them probably oh, probably rough. would have they would have said look this was either going to be the bet of the century in the crypto yeah. sector, or, or, or it was going to be a flop. I'd write that check any time. Yeah. Right. Um, mm. What what I don't think they would have done is um, been so flippant and cavalier about the due diligence um, leading up yeah. to that process, right? But that was part of a wider problem. Yeah. That that was also to do with just where the markets were at that time. There was so much fluff, and um, people were writing ch- cutting checks. You know, within days of meeting founders, and just you know, FOMO was was mm. was off the charts, and so. It was a signal of a, of an ailing industry that was pumped full of um, hot air at the time and that's all gone out now.
0: I, 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 I beg to, so so I I agree with what I was saying, but but there's an area where I kind of beg to, oh, beg to inject some nuance, should I say, right? Because I think that yes, people write, um, you know, uh, um, as you said, I, I think you to do, there's always an assumption that there's going to be a certain amount of certain amount of these companies that are going to um, fail. Um, I think, I don't think there's a assumption or, or any writing in that would say that there's a certain amount of these companies that are going to be um, fraudulent or um, potentially give us, a innate, um, require us to do some reputational management for being involved in the company. Um, so I definitely don't think there's that, which I think we agree on, but I guess where I'm trying to go to and where I disagree is I think that so we look at fire festival we look at um uh, theranos and now we look at s and we look at ftx and sam bankman-fried w- what I don't think people are doing I think people um I think so let's say I don't think we're learning from our mistakes right and I think the way we learn from our mistakes is not to just look at it and say Okay, well, actually, you know, let me put it this way. I think, as I said, the questions are going to be, why did you not do due diligence? And people are going to keep saying, oh, well, there was this, there was that. Or I thought this or I thought that. I think when we look at the situation, you know, people should look at it and say, okay, they didn't do due diligence, right? And people did jump in and it did grow to this degree. Why? And I think we need to learn that we need to capture whatever spirit of the age they were able to conjure. And it includes people like them, it includes people like um, the WeWork founder, as I said, uh, uh, um, Adam Neumann. It also includes the, you know, the more, uh, the more vanilla in comparison, Elon Musk, um, um, Alibaba founder, Jack Ma, But we need to capture... Like what was the zeitgeist, what was that spirit of the age that caused people to, to actually both consumer and also investor to run into this opportunity and to not say this is all bad, but actually instead say, yes, there was, no, there w- there was little substance. Well, with Theranos, there was virtually no substance. With this, there was substance, but, but on the compliance and other side, little substance belief it, but but how can we now marry this powerful movement this powerful stuff with actual substance and cause something that makes the world go round but i think there's too many people who would actually rather dismiss the whole thing and actually it's going to make them hyper cynical to um to another person who comes along who might be legitimate they'll think he's a charlatan right because he legitimately wants to wear a t-shirt right he's a charlatan but it's not about saying Okay, everyone who wears a t shirt is a charlatan. Everyone who speaks in flamboyant or futuristic kind of terms is a charlatan. And everyone who is, you know, almost robotically fixed is not. It's about actually trying to read and understand people in different personas and going, actually, there's something about this guy that people would like and that appeals to me. Now, let me lucidly go. I think on, a marketing, on the marketing on the on the jazz side you could succeed, but now let me let me also lucidly say: is there something on the substance side that, that can succeed? But I think we're flip flopping, and that flip flopping is coming about by people who actually have an inherent, um, almost disgust for marketing and for entertainment and for story and for narratives. But but that disgust makes them hyper hyper sensitive to it.
1: If that makes sense. Yeah. So I think. It comes down to this thing of mimetic desire, right? Uh, or FOMO, <laughs> okay. right? where, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, it, 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 that's part of it. The other part of it is structural incentives in the VC sector, I think. So on the FOMO right. side, you're mm-hmm. so right. There's, you know, how to inspire FOMO in people. That's, that's not necessarily, that's, I mean, that's a very valuable skill. And it's, it, it, is a, mm-hmm. it is something, you know, because ultimately it leads to your ability to influence others. Right. Correct. And that's important for any founder, not just influencing investors to put money in, but influencing employees to join and clients to buy and that sort of thing. So that skill, you're right, should not be thrown out and disregarded simply because there are people who Mm -hmm. abuse it and are able to build massive houses of cards with uh, with flimsy foundations purely based off of their. Their ability to spend and influence people, right, uh, or predominantly based off of that. So, so I think that's what we need to try and capture in a bottle, and use our powers yeah. for good. Is that ability to instill FOMO, um, in, in in people. There's also the other side. I think in the structural side of the VC space, which the the game is at its worst. It is essentially musical chairs, where.
0: <laughs> a, yeah past like the hot potato exactly. right it's like
1: hot potato yeah, musical exactly, chairs exactly. name any children's game yeah that involves time exactly, running out exactly and you not wanting to be <laughs> caught holding the bag at the end of the game right and correct, so correct. that is also partly what structurally inspires FOMO right? because you get somebody mm. who comes in there's g- few very few genuinely potentially attractive businesses that could return your fund especially those massive funds right now you've got this yeah fairly new dynamic sector there's three or four major players one of them comes to you you've got how long do you have to make a decision before you get left out of the round not sure if it's yeah. really this hot yeah and I'm asking for I mean some of the some of the folks that he pitched to literally would ask him and say who's your CFO where's your board can we see yeah. some financial state and, and quite literally at one point, uh, Chamath Palapatiya says, um, they listened to a pitch from FTX. They reviewed the governance mm-hmm. structure. They came back with a couple of pages in a memo suggesting that, look, you know, we'd like to see you have a board of directors, which is not an outrageous suggestion. And mm-hmm. got a phone call back from one of the FTX staff literally saying F off. Um, yeah. Not figuratively saying F off. Those are the words we were used. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, so the ability to do that, right? That's coming from somewhere, and I think it's down to the structural mm. incentives there, where it's it's sort of thinking, well, listen, listen, we're filling this round, we've got we're going to be way oversubscribed. There's so much money slushing about. We're in a hot sector. Are you in or are you out? Right. Mm. So um, there's also lessons to be learned from that, I suppose. You know, we can criticise the, the the game, but I think if you're going to be playing in that game, and we don't play here in the in the VC space per se. But if you're in a sector that is influenced a lot by VC, mm-hmm. it's worth understanding what the structural incentives are and seeing to what extent you can either avoid them from taking you off course or play them to your advantage. Mm. So this combination of FOMO, jazz, marketing, influence, memetic desire, yeah. and also understanding the structural incentives of your audience. I think can be a very powerful combination. Those are some, some lessons we can actually take from this whole debacle, which can be used for good.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I think, um, and, and, and it actually reminds me of, because uh, there's a Netflix show about uh, Bernie Madoff at the moment, and, and he did something similar in terms of, I mean, obviously he, he's, his whole Bonzi scheme was over 40 billion, like 45, 46 billion. Um, and there were certain people who wanted to exit well, actually he wanted to ask questions, right? Um, and when they did ask questions, his thing was, Well look, no worries. I'll I'll literally I'll liquidate your position and I'll return the money to you, you know, whenever whatever the kind of redemption period was. Um, but note that you will never be able to put it in this again. And they will go, Okay, okay, fine. And they didn't ask any questions, right? And so there is that there is that that thing, and literally the only thing um, because the SEC actually went, and I mean, it's—I it's, mean, I've watched another documentary on it as well, but it's just like a series, so it's quite fascinating. This goes into slightly more detail, right? Um, I watched another, um, but the SEC again, because of his stature, like, like, like he. So there was one particular moment, which I thought was just—and this is the thing—it, we respect this in poker, right? And we respect this in the founder's story. But the difference here is because there was no substance, it went south. So, in, so there was a moment where um, Bernie Madoff, he, you know, the SEC had an issue, so he literally called them, and he said, I'm coming to your office. And he went to the SEC office. Now he knows these guys, right? This guy basically started the NASDAQ, so he knows these guys. And he goes, they go, look, what's your clearing account? What's this? At? He writes down the account details, and he gives them the number of the bank. Now, if they called that number, and check that account, he would have been found out. So he was waiting, he did it on Friday, he waited on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, he got no call for them, and he gathered that did, they didn't call it, so he continued. And the only wow. thing that really, the only thing that really took him out was issued a 2008 financial crisis because people needed liquidity. So they were like, look, I need to exit my position. And obviously he, you know, it's a Ponzi scheme, so you can't really exit everyone's position, right? Because it's not around, but, but it's, it's- Musical chairs. Look, it's musical chairs, but the thing is, I would say that. So 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 his so so my thinking is there are the founders of this and I don't you know, I don't know Tramath and I've probably said that probably he's you know, he I think he's a narratives guy as well. I think he kind of play power plays on certain narratives, right? But I think maybe part of the issue is um as you were saying, yes, there's a structural thing, but I think that, I think there are people in in VC who are not founders or who are not you know who, who don't have the same risk appetite although you although VC is a risky game who therefore are unable essentially to play poker with these guys right it's it's you're, you're literally getting I mean you're getting somebody who he's he's got an obvious tell he frankly is uncomfortable being in the seat with even a beginner and he's sitting down Trying to call the bluff, right, of your Elizabeth Holmes, your Sam Bankman Freed, and others. And they can't. And they are literally playing them like everyone. So I mean, I mean, because we have to look at we have to we have to look at the number of people. I mean, Tom Brady, I mean, you know, was in this. I think DiCaprio was on this. Steph Curry was on this, right? Um he, he named an arena after FTX. Clearly, he played both sides. And and again, I, I I look at it and sometimes people go like, dude, are you like, remember, like the, the Fire Festival guy, I forget his name, like he was a genuine fraud. He was, but he was super talented. And clearly what we're seeing that if you are talented in maths, right, you go and become a mathematician and you do things that are statistical and functional, right? But there's this thing about communication that we so underrate. But if you are talented in communication that is clearly we're seeing around the world that is probably the best talent you can have right that talent in communication persuading people and frankly i mean let's call it what it is manipulating people right that's the negative connotation but essentially if we just look at it as what it is right that talent of be, essentially you being able to communicate very clearly and read people very clearly and read different people and act accordingly, right, and and generate FOMO. That is what most people don't understand. I even had a VC say to me beforehand, I have no idea how, how to get virality or, or buzz or FOMO. Basically, I think you just put lots of money behind something and give it a year or two years, right? But there's a there's a lack of wanting to understand that, wanting to do the work, wanting to to go and actually become better communicators themselves. And as long as you don't do that, you are going to actually be afraid of the communicator because you know he just like the Pied Piper, he can he can make you dance to any tune. And that tune one day might be put a billion in this account. The tune the other day might be, actually, you know what? I don't think you should I don't think you've got access to this, right? that's kind of what I'm saying so I I agree with you about the structural stuff but I keep saying that like we're going to keep in today's world right and fine it might slightly go down a bit because as you say we're in a different climate now you know there's not as much dry powder etc but as long as there is money right on a large scale or on a small scale people are going to fall for this until we learn the power of communications the media knows it and our people know etc
1: people are going to fall for this I think there's also, look, I think there's a wide recognition of the power of communication. One of the most successful books ever Mm. printed, how to win friends and influence people, Dale Carnegie, right? Mm. That's a very old book. Mm. So I think this idea has been there um, for a long time. We've seen it in politics. We've seen storytellers with very little substance climb to the heights of global political power. We've seen that in the private sector, Mm. but I, but I think what people do lack or don't appreciate is they assume that that's a, either a skill that you have or you don't and mm, it's not really seen like this
0: genius like this genius gene exactly, right exactly exactly and
1: it's not seen as a, a, a craft that one can well it's not seen by enough people widely enough and taken seriously enough as a craft that people can develop hone and improve on substantially correct so i think that's that you know that, and that's correct. and we see that in in, in, you know, some of the narrative work that we're doing for the products around mustard, right? Is there's a real, yes, there's an art to it, but there's also, you know, th- there's a scientific element to it. What makes people believe things? What, what how do yeah. people make decisions around buying and investing and joining movements? Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. what what are the, what elements go into that decision-making? How much of that is conscious versus subconscious? What are the subconscious yeah. things that people respond to and how can one identify and deploy them? And there's a lot yeah. of thinking that yeah. you know, I've seen you and the team do around that and applying it to very, very specific products, brand messages, whatever the case may be. And it's something that I find really eye-opening that, hey, this isn't mm. just a genius gene there's logic behind even seemingly illogical decision-making. 100%, 100%. 100%. So,
0: so, so if I were to even say, in my opinion, um, how do you know somebody who's, who's, who has the potential, let me be very clear, who has the potential to be good at narratives? Actually, how do you know somebody who's, who's good at narratives, right? There's a, there's a positive and a negative way, right? But you can probably see it in, in, in younger people Right. If if a child is very good and maybe your child or otherwise is very good at telling lies, they can lie convincingly, even from a young age, they have a talent for narratives. Right. That 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 might sound. Um, and I think, you know, that's where it sounds scary because no one like and obviously lying's not good and 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 you know we don't want to do that. but 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 the scariness of it is it is it literally is um it is a what, what, what do we call somebody who's lying he's telling a story he's he's making a story i making up a fiction now if somebody's a terrible liar and you can always see through it they're they're probably a you know not that great at narratives if somebody's a good liar you can you can bet your bottom dollar that person will be pretty good at narratives and then, but the question is how are they going to use it right and um are they going to use it to inspire others or to con others right um and and, and then the other you know i, I, I guess i guess question or, or the other thing i'll kind of uh, uh, um almost kind of going into where this went right and the kind of you know we talk about the vcs and and, and if we talk about what what do we think VCs should be doing in around this, right? Now, again, I go to it. This guy got Tom Brady, Shaq, Steph Curry. He got Mr. Wonderful, right, from from Shark Tank to invest in him with no due diligence, right? And if you've ever worked Shark Tank, this is the guy where you just think it's a write-off. This guy's going to give me anything. He got him to put money. Well, I think, well, I don't know if he kind of put money in, but at least to be an ambassador, right? And to be honest, he's he's, he's almost still an ambassador for him, right? It's... Um, and it's a thing that we're talking about at, at Mustard, right? Many of the times we speak to, you know, I speak to people and we say, you know, what has Africa got right now that that's powerful? Well, it's got celebrities. That's probably where it, it's biggest powerhouse, right? Can we work with celebrities? Can Is there something we can do with celebrities? And a lot of the times I speak to VCs and what they say is there's this kind of almost forget about it. They are um, maybe too emotional they are difficult to control. They are, you know, temperamental, etc. But it's actually like, well, one, why do you have to control something? That's one, right? Um, why don't you unleash something, right? Whether it's a mathematical ability or otherwise. And two, nobody's saying that, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, right? Or, pff, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the most artistic, let's say Prince back in the day. Nobody's saying Prince should be a CFO. Right. Surely there's somebody who's good at being a CFO and should be a CFO. Right. Um, And to be honest, if somebody understood narratives there, maybe Shamath was in that what was in that ballpark to some degree. Look, you've got talent potential. Why don't we find somebody who has, you know, this is to sound bank with Why don't we find somebody who has the potential as a CFO? To enable you to do what you're good at doing, which is bringing in all of these guys and 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 um, leveraging all of these audiences based on you know people as squeaky clean as Tom Brady. So, um, yeah, I think I th- I think we need to take more risk, and I think our risk aversion actually, so going against almost the um, what the VCs are doing. I think actually, if anything, the VCs are taking are not wanting to take risks, which is, and they have a almost a a fear of risk, which is why um, you end up doing groupthink, right? Which is, if Elizabeth Holmes is the big thing, yeah, let's all put money to Elizabeth Holmes. If this one's the big thing, let's put money to that. I mean, how many VCs, right? And I guess you'd say, well, it's it's part of parcel, right? But how many VCs are there who have a track record of investing in things super early. How many VCs want to invest in, you know, people, right? And their ideas as opposed to proven track records, especially in the Africa space, right? Are we being risk averse, but but we're masquerading our risk aversion in the sense of, um, you know, it, it, with the word being proper, right? Um um, due diligence and otherwise. I don't know. I'm I'm probably waffling into a different space, but am I making
1: sense? Mm, I mean, VCs take a lot of risk, right? They do take a lot of risk. They take a lot of a certain type of risk. They fundamentally are managing primarily, lots of their LPs are pension funds, endowment funds, things of that nature. Some of them are high net worth individuals. So there's a responsibility, fiduciary responsibility for them to try and de-risk investments and portfolios, more importantly, to a certain extent. And so, you know, I don't want to say VCs aren't taking risk, but to your point, they, they aren't, they're they're taking a certain type of risk and then they're trying to de-risk that through this whole pattern matching kind of behavior, Mm -hmm. right? Where it's, um, this looks a lot like the other one. The other one was successful. Maybe this one will be successful, right? So that's one thing, but this is also where it comes down to the structural incentives of the VC investment model, I think, is, you know, th- it, there's, there's a certain amount of money they have, they have to deploy that amount of money within a certain time frame. They want to narrow down what they invest in either by geography or sector or stage of investment. Those are sensible things, I guess, right? But then also they're throwing this other layer of, and this is more a psychological behavioral trait, I think, of, hey, you know what? The last investor that did really well for me, this person reminds me a lot of that one, right? And so I think that's where if you can can play to that as a SBF or an Elizabeth Holmes or whoever it is, I read somebody said it, it activates the investor erogenous zones. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and, and that's, there's a it, it's manipulative power in that, right? Um, so I, I think part of that is, it really is the, the structural incentives of VC um, make it difficult for them to see their own blind spots sometimes. And mm-hmm. so this is why I, I think two things. One is VC is a, one type of early stage investment. It's not the only type. And yeah. I think it's probably fairly good at what it purports to do, but people are trying to use it for things it's not suitable for. Mm. And I think idea stage investment, for instance, I just don't think that suits the VC model. It's not built for that. Yeah. And so I think people, true, need, true, to, people true. need to think about other forms of, yeah. of investment model for those sort of ideas rather than trying to mm. bend and twist VC into something it's not designed to do. Yeah, fair, fair, fair.
0: So, so let, let, let's kind of break this down a bit. Um, what does this mean? I spoke to a good friend of mine, an investor who actually was long in quite a few crypto areas. Um, uh, he said, basically, this has put crypto back. I can't remember how he said, how, however many years he said, but we can say he's, he's put crypto back years. We know that in... So um, both Alameda Research and FTX were investors in companies. Um, obviously, crypto in Africa um, has been, is big. Um, it continues to be big, to be fair. But it is, in my opinion, something that is actually necessary kind of on, a, on an infrastructure level as opposed to something that's cool in a sense of there are um, liquidity issues, especially in dollars and otherwise on the continent. There are um, just Forex issues as well, right? So um, yes, there have been people, there are companies that have lost money, that had their money in um, on the FTX exchange, right? Um, they've lost money. But in your opinion, what do you think? Does FTX affect... Um the near future of crypto. Um, does it affect the longer future of crypto? Essentially, as we were saying, are people gonna look at it now and almost flip to the other side and say, Oh, okay, no, I remember I remember Sam Beckman Fried, um, Mr. or Mrs. Super Safe Crypto, you're not gonna have me again. Um, not gonna happen, right? In this climate, what does it what does it do, do you think?
1: I'm not a crypto expert, but from what I'm gleaning, I think there's probably two avenues I'd explore around that. So what's the impact of this on crypto? One is, I don't, I think it's going to prevent a certain percentage of people who were on the margins thinking about going to crypto and not going to crypto. It's going to prevent quite a lot of them from going in for some time. I don't think it's going to stop people who are diehard crypto fans from continuing to invest in crypto. And that is a fairly substantial number. So I don't think it turns off a lot of people who are already in, but I think it prevents a certain portion of people, and that's a, probably a large number, who are considering it, playing around with the idea, thinking about getting some exposure. I think there's a certain number of people now who don't do it for a while, who delay. But actually, I think the current crypto customer base or user base is is, is gonna to continue to, to grow. Um, I think it doesn't really, I think in the African context, there are a lot of, um, companies which are cleverly, not necessarily pushing themselves as quote unquote crypto companies, but they're more referring to themselves as blockchain based, um, entities, right? Which whether you, you're doing FX exchange, things of that nature. And I'm sure there might be a digital currency element to it, but it's not just sort of pure speculation, um, you Mm. know, or, or a platform that's there to just sort of aid, aid pure speculation, right? So I think those continue to get funding. I think the biggest impact this is gonna have on the sector is regulation. Because now, and by that I mean the US regulator, right? Because now I think there's been a lot of uh, cat and mouse being played by the US regulator about how they're gonna regulate. Are they gonna regulate by enforcement? Are they gonna actually create laws? What are they gonna do around crypto? And there's a political game being played Um, between those who want to see increased regulation in crypto and those who think it should be left alone and something like this gives a lot of political clout and power and momentum for those who are pro-regulation and for some business models, they're gonna be seen as regulated securities Whether they like it or not and if you want to play in the States and you fall under that category now You've got to be regulated like a bank or like any other Mm -hmm. regulated security, right and so I think that's going to be the biggest momentum shift in the sector, and some business models won't survive that. Others will adapt and comply, but you know, if there's a wall of regulation that hits, yeah, I think it's going to be more more sort of contained growth, uh, but also maybe more stable growth for the sector, and then it will grow within that context.
0: I mean, on the regulation front, which I 100% agree with you on, the interesting thing may be that it might actually um, provoke an increase in growth and investment in the Africa crypto space. Um, Because, just because I don't think the reg I mean, the regulation in general just hasn't been as fast and can't be as, I mean, it just just isn't suited to be as fast, right? Um, So that might, it almost like how... um, yeah i mean amazon for example put put um cash this is ages ago into um oof, it was a drone delivery company that will the name of it should come to me but essentially they put cash in there to see if their drone delivery would work and they were delivering um blood uh in particular via drone in rwanda and essentially they were trying to see if their technology can get super efficient and you know good to the degree that they can then start to they could then apply it and take it to the US where it might be a little bit trickier to have you know drones flying around dropping Amazon parcels uh from the air you know um um so yeah I think it might lead it it could lead to more investment or it could lead into those who really want to um have a test bed to put in money into Africa um I agree with that but so so how about this one Um, what do you think, um, and maybe this is one for me to answer, so this, all this stuff around narratives, right, because I think clearly Sam Bankman-Fried, again, whether he knew about it or not, um, whether it was more of a subconscious, just knows how to, how to, I don't want to use the word manipulate because people will see it so negatively, how to, let's say, communicate and stimulate FOMO or not, um, whether he was conscious about that or unconscious about that, clearly that was what he was able to do. What do you think um, we should take out of it? Or the Africa space and founders in the Africa space. Um, I think it was founders in every space, but let's talk about the Africa space. What do you think they should take out of it?
1: Um, Firstly, I think he he knew exactly what he was doing because for some inexplicable reason, between the... Initial allegations going on in November and the declaration of bankruptcy. And after that, he was just live tweeting his open thoughts. Yeah.
0: And doing interviews. Yeah, yeah. He was on Twitter spaces.
1: Weirdly honest about certain things, including the fact that, yeah, yeah, listen, um, a lot of the stuff I was saying around the need for regulation and, um, you know, all the sort of very palatable, seemingly um, forward thinking fair um you know suggestions he was making he he he's essentially admitted that that was just b s that he was doing because he you know he was just playing the game essentially to try and create top cover for okay. himself yeah he it's it's astounding what he's admitted to um in a lot of these in these sort of like the stream of consciousness that he had <laughs> in the midst so. of massive legal jeopardy um <clears throat> and yeah. so it was definitely intentional um by his own admission. In terms of spinning mm. and crafting a narrative that he knew would get certain people on board he you know the fact that he was quite overtly donating to the party in power which is the democratic party which his parents were both i think quite influential in or something like that but also having his co-founder mm. um you know donate hedge, donate to hedge and donate to the republicans i mean that just shows you the state of mind right this is somebody who was mm. um very intentionally understanding doing in depth stakeholder analysis, understanding what the interests were of each stakeholder, understanding what they wanted to hear and what he was able, and then telling them that, right. In a way that, Mm. and doing so in a very, very effective, um, compelling manner. And I think, unfortunately Mm. he did that for for deeply unethical reasons, but the, the playbook is, is good. And so in terms of takeaway for this, I think those are skills that we need to understand Right, and those of us who are trying to yeah. build things for 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 the greater good or for good reason and do so ethically, you know, would do well to to learn from that playbook. Right, um, being intentional about crafting and communicating a narrative and kind of obsessive about it and being strategic about it. I think that's that's yeah. that's for me the biggest takeaway. Yeah,
0: yeah, hundred um, percent. You know, as I j- just just just. Um, agree with what you're saying and just following on from that, yeah, I mean, we have to, I think out of it and I think obviously because of the number of people who've lost money and otherwise, this would be an unpopular take but essentially, just as you're saying, we have to look at this and actually say that in some degree uh, like in, in in an area this was successful, just like in an area, the fire Festival was successful um, and in an area, you know Theranos was successful, right? Not in I think the area that matters, which is the overall, has it served humanity? Can they, you know, um, you know, has it been of service, and does it continue at least to some degree to be of service to mankind? In that in that regards, it was not. But I think we need to, we need to, and every founder um, needs to understand how can you know how to organically, um, or how to read people. How to actually target an audience, not as an um, exercise for a marketing agency, but actually an exercise for your company that you have founded. Like, what is it that, like, why have you founded this company? What is it that you want to do, right? You, are you passionate about this company or are you passionate about money, right? If you're passionate about this company, um, how can you somehow capture and communicate your passion? Because as, as, as I always say, if you're really passionate about it, if it keeps you up at night, it's gonna keep somebody else and quite a few other people up at night because you're not an alien, you're a human being like others. So um, yeah, for me, I just really want, I just don't want people to be, to have a, a almost like an allergic reaction um, now, ongoing allergic reaction to um, to narratives, to somebody who is clearly good at communicating. Um, but similarly, I say, look, learn how to communicate and, and, and use it for good um, as opposed to for ill. Um, because yeah, what what FTX did do in the space of what three years, um, in terms of how much it raised, in terms of where SBF was able to go, who was able to influence, um, it, it, it was actually astounding. If you think about it.
1: Highly effective.
0: Yeah, highly effective. <laughs> <laughs> the lawyers just 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 making sure we say the right words. Yeah. <laughs> Highly effective and